Hello and welcome to another Sustainable Wine Roundtable podcast. My name is Tom Outram and I'm the Operations and Partnerships Manager of the SWR. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Johan Reinecker of Reinecker Wines, owner and winemaker. Good afternoon, Johan. How are you? Hey, Tom. I'm good, thanks. Nice to be on your podcast. Maybe if you could just start with giving our listeners an idea of where we are and what you do. Okay, so we're sitting in the hills of Polka Dry. As I'm sitting in my chair, I'm looking over the sea, over False Bay in the distance. These are granite outcrops. they ancient, very old, extensively weathered hills. We grow our vines here. We're in a, I suppose, biodynamic farm, organic farm certified. I've been doing it for a long time, about 25 years now. Special to be here, still going strong and trying to do things better as we go on. In the context of climate change, what lessons have you learned that can ensure the practice remains relevant? It goes kind of beyond biodynamics. I think the bigger term would be regenerative agriculture. I think it's absolutely crucial. To my dismay, I came to know that modern agriculture is one of the five biggest contributors to global warming. And I definitely don't want to be a person who gets up every morning and does a job that actually makes the world warmer. That's not ideal. What I do like is that if you flip that coin, agriculture has the potential to be one of the biggest levers or the strongest tools. We have to slow things down or possibly reverse them. All kinds of regenerative agriculture hopefully has the ability to do this in terms of carbon sequestration. And biodynamics is very big on that. So it kind of goes beyond it. I always like to say to people, an organic farm is a sustainable one and a biodynamic farm is a self-sufficient one. It's an interesting idea. If you read Rudolf Steiner's book, Agriculture, he refers to the farm as being an individuality. And I think the image he's trying to create is that in the old days, farms would be able to exist almost like a circular economy of sorts and look after themselves. And as agriculture became industrialized, it was increasingly heading in the direction of monoculture and high production costs and things that would have to be imported from outside the farm to keep things going. And what biodynamics does today is it really tries to align multiple organic systems in synergistic fashions and allow them to feed off each other. And do you think the certifications like Demeter do enough around communicating that message around the benefits of practicing biodynamically? You mentioned the circular economy, you mentioned regenerative farming. Do you think they do enough? And are there any other challenges that you face being certified? Demeter is doing a great job. I think they are very much, you know, to give you an idea, when I've farmed organically with grapes only, I would have to buy a certified organic fertilizer to feed my vines in order to be able to do so. But through Demeter and through all things biodynamic, I started a herd of cows on my farm. And two things have happened. One is we've completely almost eliminated production costs. And two is we've eradicated waste. So how that works is if you farm, as I mentioned before, in an organic way, you're not allowed to buy the synthetic or artificial fertilizers. You need certified organic fertilizer, and that's typically an animal manure that's been composted and pelletized, but it still costs the farm money, and it's still made somewhere and transported to the farm. If you farm organically with cows, for example, they're also very fortunate. They don't grow up in feedlots. Hopefully they have names and not numbers and you respect their, you know, inherent value, not just their commercial value. 
but where they sleep every evening there's a buildup of manure and in that area the nitrogen levels can also become really high in the soil and if you grow your organic grapes and you make wine you also have this buildup of pips and stems and skins at the winery after harvest but the moment you farm with cows and grapes you can literally take the waste of the cows uh, compost it put that in the vineyards and that saves you from buying fertilizer be they conventional or organic and can feed all the waste from the cellar back to the cows again it's better for the environment it reduces waste and it's also got huge economic benefits for the farmer and you mentioned you've been practicing regenerative farming now it's a very sort of trendy buzzword for you how do you define it to someone who's new to the subject and what benefits have you seen since adopting the approach okay so my motivation was a personal one i started in this industry as a farm laborer and i did not enjoy working with hazardous chemicals on a regular basis i was also doing my master's degree in environmental ethics and i think with knowledge comes obligation and the combined effects of what i was experiencing in the day and what i was reading in the evenings compelled me to look at different ways to farm this was a long time ago sort of late 90s early 2000 today i don't think it's about me and my personal preferences anymore I think it's a much broader debate. I've mentioned before that industrialized conventional agriculture is one of the five biggest drivers in terms of global warming. And I think regenerative agriculture, albeit biodynamically or organically, gives us a very powerful tool to slow things down or per perhaps reverse them. What I would like to include with all of that is the importance to look at biodiversity as well. So until recently, our emphasis was on carbon sequestration. We've managed to do so through the use of plants and also the combined use of animal husbandry through high density grazing in our vineyards and in our pastures. Our farming operations are carbon negative at the moment, and we thought it was a great thing, and I'm sure it, it still is a great thing. But I recently also came to understand that since the 16th century, we've lost about a third of all living species on planet Earth, largely due to how we as humans live. And as you and I sit here today, there are over 200 plant species that are critically endangered in the Western Cape through agriculture. Now that's a different thing, whether you farm conventionally or organically or biodynamically, if you're going to remove indigenous plants and or, or wild species, that is hugely problematic. On our farm, we try to find a balance between land caring, which is all things regenerative agriculture, but we also try and incorporate land sparing, which is looking after wilderness and then trying to understand how doing those things benefit not only the greater good, but also have a positive outcome on our wine and the quality of our wine and the way we farm. Now, it seems that everyone is talking about the sustainability of packaging in wine. Can you tell us about the recent work you've been doing on bottle weight? Yeah, it's a very good point. About a year or two ago, there was a well-known journalist in the UK and one of the people who tasted our wines made a comment and said, it's a pity that these bottles weigh so much. We'd not expect it from a sensible organic biodynamic producer like Johan Reinecker. I thought it was fair comment. Admittedly, I didn't really think of it before then. For me, sustainability was what we did on the farm. Today, I understand it's a much broader concept. It doesn't stop at the farm gate but it also doesn't stop at bottles. 
everybody in this industry, whether you're growing the grapes, whether you're making the wine, whether you're selling the wine, whether you're writing about the wine and flying all over the world to do so, um, we all have big carbon footprint in impacts. So to give you an example, if you flew one way from, let's say, London to New York, the carbon footprint of that would be the equivalent of three pallets of wine. A pallet of wine is about 120 cases of six bottles each. So we're talking of a lot of bottles of wine that just a one-way flight would add up to. So what am I doing with this? I think the first thing to understand, we've got a beautiful proverb in Africa to say, if you want to go fast, you go alone. And if you want to go far, you go together. So I think the first step is to understand that as an industry, with all the different roles we play, there comes a responsibility collectively to look at our carbon footprint. And it's not just the primary or the secondary producer, but it is the middleman and everyone else who benefits from this wonderful world of wine and to a certain degree also the consumer. We must do some introspection, work together, everybody do their bits and pieces that they can and they're part of the world to try and offset the damage that they do. So from a Reineke perspective, we've gone further than the farm gate on two counts. The one is bottle weight was a very interesting exercise for us and a bit more nuanced than we imagined. So when we started off, we simply assumed that a lightweight locally produced bottle would have the lowest carbon footprint. Once we did the research, this seemed not to be the case. It was very interesting, but um, we could actually import bottles from Europe and have a lot smaller carbon footprint in doing so. So how is that possible? How that's possible is that if we, for example, imported some bottles from Germany, 75% of the glass that they use in that bottle would be recycled and the electricity that they would use to make those bottles would be from renewable resources. If you buy a super lightweight bottle in South Africa, it's pretty much 100% new glass and the electricity is derived from burning coal, which is obviously not ideal. So we were looking at that. We're looking also at the actual bottle weight itself. Then we've started looking at alternative packaging. Sustainability is a funny thing. It's a three-legged chair. You have to look after money. You have to look after people. And you have to look after nature. Unfortunately, the sad truth is you can exploit nature the longest and get away with it. People the second longest. But when you run out of money, the business stops immediately. We also cannot be exclusively production orientated. We have to consider market feedback. And in some countries, people welcome alternative packaging, like let's say one liter or a 750 ml Tetra pack or wine in a can. But you get other markets as well where this is not the case. And in those markets, people have this idea that quality comes at a price and a good quality bottle of wine will come in an expensive heavyweight bottle. We can't afford to just lose market share. So what we're trying to do is in the markets that are open to change, to start offering an alternative, more environmentally friendly, lighter weight packaging and see how far we can get that to the consumer, perhaps with some education on the packaging itself. In other markets, we've been met with resistance and we will have to stay the course there for a bit longer and slowly but surely kind of influence and change the things we do. The other areas that we've also found that was very interesting was I was on a panel discussion with a professor Guy Mitchley from the sustainability department at Stellenbosch University. 
and he made an interesting comment. He said that if I wore glasses that could see CO2, I would be shocked to see how saturated the atmosphere is with carbon dioxide. And the reality is that there is so much CO2 in the air that the surplus CO2 is being pushed into the oceans. And this is basically leading to their acidification and all the knock-on effects of that as well. And he explained to me that even if we could prove that we had sequestered a ton of carbon on our farm, the net effect would only be the removal of about half a ton or 500 kilograms out of the atmosphere because the other half would simply jump back from the ocean into the atmosphere. So there's a lot of learning and I think what the key takeaway there is not emitting is the biggest and the easiest win. So what we've done is in the past, we've always looked at solar, we've looked at the technology, we've looked at the costing, we've compared it to energy costs, and we've seen that technology gets cheaper and electricity gets more expensive, and we were sort of waiting for that tipping point, but that's not the case anymore. Now that we understand that not emitting is the biggest winner, we've got three quotations at the moment in at the bank to see if they'll finance us to try and get as off the grid as humanly possible then there, of course, none of these things are simple. There are issues around the batteries and especially the lithium used in the production thereof. And then we're also trying to think out the box. So at the moment, our tractors, for example, are diesel operated. We see that in Denmark, for example, they have these Monarch tractors that are energy or battery powered. And the idea is perhaps we can rather get some of these machines and use their batteries to also store some of our electricity when the sun isn't shining. So we've embarked on these and trying to learn more, keep an open mind. It's definitely the way to go. And then on the farm itself, we've also employed new technology. The one is a thing called biocharring. So traditionally, if you have big stumps or pieces of wood on the farm that you can't chip and use in your composting, people would probably just stack them in a heap and burn them and inadvertently put a lot of CO2 in the atmosphere. Now we burn them in a type of kiln, and what this does is it creates charcoal, and when we make compost with the waste on the farm and the animal manure, we add the charcoal to the compost, and it reduces the methane emissions from the composting process, and it also absorbs some of the animal manure and slurry nutrients. So when we spread this back in our vines, we're not only putting carbon down, but we also have a very slow release supplementary food for our grapes, if I can put it that way. It seems like you can't do all this work by yourself. You've obviously got a great team here. Can you tell us a bit more about the Cornerstone project and the importance of the social sustainability part of wine and what that means to you? Two things. The first thing is I got incredible advice a long time ago, and that was to surround myself with people better than me. And I'm not saying that to be humble. I'm saying that because it actually works in a business environment. Nobody is good at everything. And if you look for people who are better than you are in specific environments or departments, it really lifts the overall level of the performance of the business. So that was one thing that we set out to do. And today I can proudly say that I think we have ticked most, if not all, of the boxes in that regard. And we've got an incredible team of people that basically taking Reineke wines into the future. The second thing is I started as a student to work as a farm laborer 
It was kind of unusual at the time. Most of my friends were working as waiters or barmen or trying to get slightly higher paying, less hard work jobs as students. But I fell in love with working in vineyards, the outdoorsiness of it, working with vines. Um, it was wonderful. But one day in particular, we were busy pruning Cabernet and it was freakishly cold. And I went to my house and I put my wetsuit on. I love surfing. So I put my wetsuit on and put my work clothes over my wetsuit and went back to the vineyards to prune. And when I looked around me, I saw my colleagues had taken bits and pieces of newspaper, put that in their shoes and in their pants and in their shirts. And it shocked me to really see that not everyone could afford a wetsuit. And just the bigger nature of it was not a good one because the wine industry is amazing. You know, wine is a beautiful thing. It brings joy and happiness to so many people and you enjoy it at the best establishments in the best company and very often pay, pay a pretty penny for it. It's a beautiful product, but you cannot make beauty from ugly. And I just felt that it wasn't right that people at the bottom end of this industry that we all love so much were paid so little. At the time, I went with my colleagues and we asked the number of farmers if we could have an increase in pay. But that was difficult because two reasons. One, South Africa has a very high unemployment rate of more than 30%. And two is that the agricultural industry, especially from a sort of a viticulture point of view, is not a financially very strong one. So what you have is you have farmers with their backs against the wall financially and you have oversupply of labor. So in that context, it's very difficult to negotiate higher wages. And I thought the way out would be to start our own wine company, to start our, our own wine business. So we had two cows back then. We moved them out of the shed. We made a bit of wine in the shed. I thought it was pretty good. It wasn't the best. And I then got the bank manager to come and offer to basically lend us a couple of million so we could start our own wine business. What happened was this man was kind, but quite honest. And he said, you know, you don't have a degree in viticulture, oenology or commerce. You have a degree in philosophy. Most of your colleagues are illiterate. Very rich people enter the wine industry and lose a fortune. You guys are pretty much poor already. So my honest advice would be not to go there. I opted to go for it. My colleagues declined. And that night I read the work of Amartya Sen, who held a PPE chair in Oxford. And he said that if you want to empower people, you must give them choice. So we had another meeting and my colleagues chose housing and education as opposed to having a startup wine company. So they set off with estate agents, bought everybody houses and promised to pay for the university tuition of their children. And this was the humble beginnings of the Cornerstone project. So we see the workers as the cornerstone of the business. We've named one of our wines, which is a, a Cabernet Franc Cabernet Sauvignon blend, our Cornerstone wine, as a constant reminder of the importance of the people who work here. But I think the idea is to create a business that strives to produce top quality wine, but also with integrity firmly in place. So it must look after nature and must also look after people. Well, I can only recommend looking more into the project itself. And the wine is fantastic also amongst the range that you have. As you know, the Sustainable Wine Roundtable is a platform for collaboration and connecting actors in the different regions around the world. Do you think there's the potential to learn from others in different in countries? And how important is collaboration in your sort of day-to-day -day work? 
Tom, I think it's absolutely vital, and I think it's wonderful that you guys are doing what you're doing. I really do. Instead of everyone on their own trying to reinvent the wheel and figure out what sustainability is about, there's so much cross-pollination that can take place when people talk in a transparent way across borders of countries, various different industries. It's absolutely crucial, and I think it is the way forward, without a doubt. And I think the more people that join and the more people that talk, the quicker and the bigger and the better the impact that we can make as a collective. And do you look to any other regions for leadership, for examples of how to improve in your work? Man, yes. Let's put it the other way. There are no regions where I wouldn't look. I look at anything and everything. Recently, what has really helped me a lot, there's a Canadian MW. I'm not sure if she's an MW. I think she is. Her name is Michelle Buffard. And she's been very strong on climate change and the role that wine and growing grapes does in the world. And I've been on a panel discussion with her and I've watched a number of discussions she's had with other people and I've really learned a lot. Another person that I would like to single out would be Miguel Torres from Spain. I think he's doing great work as well. I had the privilege to meet him recently. We had a lot of talks on especially the use of animals in viticulture. And yeah, at uh, next week, Thursday, there's the Porto Climate Talk, uh, all things regenerative viticulture that I'm also going to be a part of. And I'm really looking forward to learning from my colleagues in Portugal and in other growing regions. But I wouldn't single out anyone. We've had amazing talks with people from the UK. We've had talks with people from South America, people from North America, Europe, Japan, for that matter. So I think it's about finding your tribe, if I can put it that way. Like-minded people who really want to get up with a sense of purpose in the morning to try and make or leave the world in a better state than they found it. I can only agree. I think, you know, everyone has something to bring to the table, even if they're not aware of it yet. They they do. So if anyone's interested in being part of the roundtable, please do get in touch. And just finally, Anne, what place do you hope the South African wine industry will be in by 2030? The South African industry has absolutely amazed and surprised me. If I just look back over the last decade or so, it's been really a renaissance of sorts. Definitely, I think in the old days of apartheid, for obvious reasons, we weren't really welcome to travel the world and the type of wines that we made and drank were pretty much limited to what we could find locally. And then when Madiba or Mandela was released, um, the world opened the doors for us and we would travel and we would see how people would make Syrah or Cabernet or Chenin or Sauvignon Blanc in different parts of the world and really be inspired by that and almost try to emulate that. And then I think we went through a phase where we became comfortable trying to find our own identity and really trying to discover who we were and what was our expression of these specific grapes and cultivars. And what I see is happening now is that people are kind of extending this and really looking at the sustainability thereof. And if I talk about the sustainability, I'm thinking of producers who are looking at producing top, top, top quality wine, but doing in a way that also not only looks at the financial bottom line, but it allows them to farm in a regenerative way, to give back to the land, that allows them to pay fair and reasonable wages to their staff. And I think this is definitely the current theme. That was the theme now at Cape Wine, Wines of South Africa. There were a number of talks around that. 
and it was heartening to see how far people had actually come down this path. I think there's an incredible positive energy around the South African wine industry at the moment. I think the wines are consistently getting better across the board. And what I really find endearing is the collaboration within the industry. If there is competition, it's of the healthy kind, people pushing each other to do better. But you will rarely find a South African producer that talks negatively or badly about another one. I think we're in all in the same boat. We help each other. We work together. We share information freely. I get numerous calls on a regular basis around organic and biodynamic farming. I share that freely. If I have questions around farming or winemaking, it's simply a phone call away. So I think there's a very healthy and very good energy in the South African wine industry. I can only see things getting more so and better going towards 2030. I think it's a very exciting time for us. Well, it's been great to speak to you and a pleasure to be able to spend some time on your farm. Thank you for listening. Do try Johan's wines. They're fantastic. And if you're interested in finding out more about the work they're doing, we'll share a link of the website and please do check it out. All right. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.